Francisco from Ontario, Canada. Uh, I'm a sheep producer up here. We run approximately 350 ewes, uh, commercial flock. Uh, we're on a modified accelerated lambing program, and we strive to uh, produce a consistent uh, product year-round. Right. Oh well, thanks for coming, Matt. Uh, one of the things with this podcast is we've got two Matts, so we'll be referring to them as Aussie Matt and Canadian Matt, just for for clarity's sake. So this is a podcast with the Global Sheep Forum again, uh, which is a monthly podcast where we talk to sheep farmers around the world and uh, and find out what their issues are and what they've been up to. So probably start off just fire straight into it with the sixth sense, which is our psychological test of our guests, where we, we check whether you're mental or not. And the idea is that we will we'll give you a a sentence or a word, and then you give us back the first thing that comes into your mind. And there'll be six of these questions. So Matt, Aussie Matt, do you want to start? I will. We'll, we'll kick off with uh, Farmer actually, actually, maybe it's just, just be Matt Daddy and Matt. <laughs> yeah, Matt Daddy. We'll go with that one. That's easier. That comes off the tongue better. All right. Farm labour. Uh, difficult to come by. Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> uh, I used to follow them. They haven't won the cup since before I was born. I was going to say disappointment, but anyway. Yeah, I was actually going to, I was actually going to go next with uh, with ice hockey, but you've already beaten me to the jump, Andrew. I, I, I presume you've. Did you tell Matt off air that you you play ice hockey in Australia in the in the league? Nah, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't add that. Oh, we'll get to that in a second. We'll just keep going. We'll just keep going with the sixth sense. Uh, what about uh, black pudding? Uh, disgusting. Oh, jeez. I'm off to end it early. Yeah, we'll probably have to end <laughs> this podcast just now. Uh, fake meat. Uh, it definitely won't replace the real product, real meat. The uh, Canadian sheep industry. Uh, loads of opportunity. Year-round lambing. Uh, spread out my risk. Is that six or no? I can't. I didn't. I wasn't counting because we got sidetracked. I'll, get, I'll do one more anyway. Uh, Crocs footwear. Shoot, never worn them. Never worn them. All right. Gosh, wow. there's the thumbs down to black pudding, and he hasn't worn Crocs, Andrew. So two of our most favourite things in the world. I'm getting fired. Sacked. Well, you know, this, this is this is what. You know, this is about information transferring and, and transferring information from sheep producers around the world, but also us transferring information to other people. So black pudding isn't disgusting. It's a superfood. Have you actually had have you actually eaten it, Matt? Canadian Matt? No, I haven't. No. So right. see, this is so the concept is disgusting, but you don't realise the incredible flavours and the health benefits of black pudding. Uh, I guess I don't. Have you ever tried a beaver tail? No, but I wouldn't say I'd it's disgusting. It. With I'd, I'd, we, you know, we're happy to try anything once or twice. Uh, so a beaver tail up here in Canada is basically like a fried bread pastry type thing. Oh, it's not and an actual apps, beaver tail. 
No, it's not actually oh, Beaver Tail. You got us all excited. Okay, say <laughs> I knew I knew I was going to. That's why I said it. <laughs> but it's uh, it's like a heart attack in this fried um, piece of bread, and they're absolutely amazing. You can get them whatever flavor you want, and uh, yeah, they're incredible. Well, that's sort of comparable to Scottish pizza. Yeah, sound a bit like that deep fried pizza. Deep fried and battered pizza. Yep. That's, yeah, gonna, I can already see this is going to be an interesting podcast because we've gone on a tangent almost immediately. We're going <laughs> tangent straight away to Beaver Tails and, uh, and Scottish deep fried pizza. So, well, I think but, that's that's the thing. What's well, Canada is pretty much it's very Scottish. Canada. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's that's probably why they have such good fried food because they've descended from the Scots. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's a um or 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 parts descended from the French, depending upon where you are? Um, do you think it's because of the cold weather that there's a you know, affinity you need some with deep fried? You to need, keep you going. Is that what it is? Starchy food and the use of deep fried, you know, kind of materials. Stodge. That's what you need. Get you through winter. Yeah. Well, I no, I don't. I, I don't know, but I like it. So. Ah, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, but the well, the description of the beaver tail, you, I think you should at least try black pudding once, just to just to confirm or deny. You should probably whether have just, you know, black pudding in, to... inside the beaver tail. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got to uh, I got to diversify my uh, my culinary uh, foods, what I like to eat. <laughs> so, so, so tell tell us a bit about your your farm and what you do. Let's yeah, so. Now. Me, me and my fiance Brenna, we we run the flock. Um, I got started before we met in 2014. Uh, we had uh, 40 ewes to start, full doors to use. And uh, yeah, I went to Ridgetown College, the Agriculture College in Ontario here. And uh, yeah, once I got done there is when me and Brenna met, and we started growing the flock from there. Uh, when I first started, we were just lambing annually. And then uh, as we started to grow, uh, infrastructure started to become a bit of an issue. So we said, how can we um, maximize the use of our infrastructure and try and keep lambs kind of flowing all the time? Uh, another thing we've done is we've gone to all um, synchronized lambing. So we're using cedars. They're a progesterone implant. I don't know how familiar you guys are with them. Not in this tall. So, so you put them in the U. They're in the U for 12 to 14 days. It uh, doesn't matter if you're 12 or 14, and then you pull them, and that will synchronize them to come into heat. The progesterone makes them think they're pregnant, and then once you pull that, then they'll want to start cycling. You have to give them a shot of um, PMSG to make them um, ovulate well. But, um, yeah, we, we do that, and then the rams are only in for four days, and we try and lamb everything over a weekend. So when me and Brenna are home from work – we're lambing ewes and we'll do that every six to eight weeks. We'll lamb a group right through the year. So you, you uh, so, kind of been, so, so the, the farm is your primary income. Um, so we both work away. Uh, the farm isn't yet. We're kind of in no man's land right now. As one of my mentors would, would put it where um, we're at a scale kind of in between full time and not full-time like that 350 u mark once we get to that 450 probably more like five or six hundred i think we'll be closer to at least one of us being home full-time uh, so did you, Matt, did, you 
Did you come off um, originally? It it sounds like this is kind of something you've just kind of came into. Yeah. So originally, I actually grew up about 40 minutes outside of Toronto um, on a hobby farm. And my dad was a bricklayer for 40 years. He retired from bricklaying. Developers wanted our land down in Oakville. So we sold that farm and we moved about 50 minutes um, north uh, to Rockwood, Ontario, right outside Guelph, Ontario is kind of the main main city. It's a big veterinary college there, an agriculture college there. Um, and um, yeah, so so that's where we farm now. We have 150 acres here, and that's where I got started in the sheep industry. Back in Oakville, like I had experience with some beef cattle and things like that, but nothing on a commercial scale by any means. So, so what, what's the attraction then? Of, why did you choose sheep uh, as a as a starting point? Is it the, you know is it the kind of smaller stocks easier to handle, or is it you just have a preference for that particular animal? What's what's the attraction? Yeah, so I was looking to do something different, like outside of what my dad was already doing. He got a few more beef cows when he moved up here, and I wanted to have my own my own thing, my own part of the business, like my own business. It's not connected to to his business at all. Uh, and I saw a tremendous opportunity for growth as well. Um, we're only filling 38 to 40% of our domestic demand here for lamb in Canada. So I saw a tremendous opportunity there. Um, and that's, that's why I started into it on a small, on a small scale. And then through the years, we've kind of grown things up. Um, there's been a tremendous opportunity too. I've had, uh, through the family I actually work for um where they have an empty pig burn and that's given us a great spot to to actually grow the flock and we use that for lambing that burn it's a perfect perfect location for us and uh, we haven't had to spend a lot of money yet on um infrastructure that that's kind of bought us the ability to be able to create some cash flow first before we we jump into anything like that so, and then I, I do run sheep off my parents' farm too. We breed ewes there and we also do a bunch of grazing there. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Uh, I think you're right in terms of, so the, 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 the outlook within Canada, you think, I think you mentioned the sheep industry when I asked about the Canadian sheep industry, you said a lot of opportunity. And so is that both domestic kind of demand is, is pretty robust uh, and not enough supply domestically, but also do you think the, the global picture is such that it's a, it's the thing to you know get into for the future. Yeah, I think uh, like I would encourage any young person um, looking to start farming to consider farming sheep. I know I wouldn't be farming today the way I am, the scale I am, if I wasn't farming sheep. I know like a lot of the other sectors are extremely capital intensive just to get started, uh, not alone to just keep going and. Um, yeah, I think the sheep industry for anybody in Canada looking to um, start into livestock farming, I would seriously give the sheep industry a serious thought. And uh, yeah, I know I'm the chair for Ontario Youth Land Producers here, and I just put the call out to all the other provinces to see if they want to get on board because I think um, a lot of these young folks need need to have a mentor and. Um, just access to resources like me or any of my board members, we don't have all the answers, but we sure will be able to connect people with the right resources to help them along the way. Uh, just, uh, yeah, I want, I want to see people in the sheep industry be successful. 
because uh, the sheep industry has been tremendous to us. And I think there's huge potential there. One of the, we had another, uh, well, an American sheep producer on a little while back as part of this series. And one of the things that she mentioned um, that is quite different, I guess, from an Australian, oh, I guess maybe not as well. If you think about, like I'm thinking about predatory animals uh, in, in that sheep space and how you deal with predatory ones. So in Australia, we'd have wild dogs, probably the worst offenders in parts of the country, but they're not they're not around the whole of the country really Thanks. causing as much grief. Um, but, you know, in Canada or in North America, as a continent, you've got far more uh, potential predatory animals. How, how do you deal with that in Canada? How do you deal with those kind of issues in Canada? Yeah, so I would say in our area, we're actually quite fortunate. We have coyotes. Uh, we have ravens. You hear about them. I've never had issues with them. Mind you, I do not graze baby lambs. So they, they seem to be a bigger issue with those that class of uh, sheep. Um, but I know for us, we all we basically need is a larger animal out with them. Uh, we have llamas. Hi. And they seem to be they seem to be enough for, for us here. You get up north of Toronto, which isn't very far away, like an hour and a half, two hours from here, and the coyote pressure. Just talking to producers up there, just seems to be a totally different ballgame. Like they, 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 a lot of them will run Great Pyrenees or Marema dogs with their sheep, and they seem to get get along with them okay. But uh, yeah, you still hear about a lot of losses for sure. And then yeah, like you get out farther north and you have wolves and other parts of camp up, up north too they have bears but it doesn't it doesn't sound like the black bears are much of an issue but i don't know as you start working into other regions of canada you get other types of bears and stuff i don't know they might they might be even more aggressive i, I would think yeah so a bit like here i guess it's very dependent upon where you're located and there are spots that you can kind of manage that problem effectively yeah for sure mm. Mm. One thing we mentioned at the outset there, we spoke about farm labour and you, you described it as being difficult and that's been a, a, a kind of issue that's been faced. It doesn't matter where, you know, whether we speak to New Zealand farmer or UK farmer or North, you know, North American farmers, labour has been a, a, an ongoing kind of challenge. What are the, what are the types of you know, kind of labour that you look for to assist as you, as you go through? I know you said before you were both working off farm as well, but what 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 uh, are you are you kind of trying to bring in from time to time to assist? What what's where's the kind of pinch points in the labour side? Yeah, I guess uh, there was a couple of years ago there where I had a part time young part time guy working for me, just very good guy. But I personally I have issues like I have my ways of doing things, and I just like them done the way I'm going to do them. So I'd sooner just try and get it done myself, but I, I don't know. That might sound really bad, but uh, that's just, that's just my thoughts at the scale I'm at right now. Um, and I'm quite blessed with the job I have that there is a tremendous amount of flexibility. So I can generally get everything I need to get done. Like Brenna works nine to five, five days a week, like that type of job. Like she enjoys it. Great. But um, yeah, I, I know with me, I think there's enough flexibility there that I don't really rely on. And that's what I came to realize. I don't really need to be worrying about trying to bring in extra labor, but for myself personally, once so I, from what, from, what you maybe, maybe well. from what you described there, it sounds like it's like almost like a general farm labor is what you're looking for just to take over, like take on some of that additional 
uh, you know, spillover from time to time, almost seasonal type stuff when you in your busier parts of the year. It's not it's not so much you're bringing in a, a dedicated contractor like a shearing team or anything like that, are you? Yeah. So the sh- the shearing will hire out. Uh, we're quite blessed. We have um, two ex Amish guys that do our shearing, uh, John Kipfer and John Kipfer Jr. They're cousins. And they've been amazing. They're sharing quite a few sheep around the countryside now. Um, I've been working with them for seven years now. And that aspect, finding a shearer, isn't an issue um, for, for me. Uh, it's more just like the general farm stuff, which I, I seem to be able to manage already. And and maybe like maybe through that May through October time frame where with the custom business I'm working for, those are that's kind of time period where we get fairly busy. Yeah. There'd be benefit to maybe having a part-time guy could call up occasionally type thing. But uh, yeah. So aside from that, I think we make out all right. So is that because you're the first producer, I guess that we spoke to that, that she, getting access to shears and crutching and that kind of work hasn't been an issue. Almost everyone else has said that's been problematic. Is that, is the Amish community, are they, would they be, is it just those guys that are, um, you know, doing it because that's the the gig, or is the Amish like generally speaking? Are they are they where you kind of source your shearers from that community? A bit like like in Australia, we get a lot of New Zealanders that come across uh, as part of a shearing team, and and without them, in some areas, we'd really struggle. Um, is it the same for you guys at the Amish? Are you kind of reserve of, of potential shearing labour? As far as I know, it's only them doing it in the Amish community. There could be more that I don't know about. Um, but other than that, there are a couple other shears in the province. A lot of them will farm as well. And I think some of them are getting to the point now where their farms are growing to a scale where they want to farm full time. So I think they're trying to cut back a bit. But uh, yeah, that's just kind of what I've, the vibe I've been getting. But uh, yeah, aside from that, do they, I... Do they, do they use electric shearers or do they use the old... Uh, electric, like they're they're ex Amish. They they use oh, electricity. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be hard going with the old hand, the manual <laughs> clippers. So, yeah, gosh, you know, it's hard enough shearing as it is. Little, let alone uh, <laughs> using the little hand clippers. And they rock rock up in their horse and cart <laughs> to do a shift. <laughs> the uh, what about one of the things that like, we see a lot of people, like on Twitter and stuff, we see a lot of Canadians complaining about the carbon tax. What's your views on that? Because Canada's got a pretty uh, pretty stringent carbon tax coming in or, or already in. Yeah, and it's going up again in April. Um, I think we need, we need a major change in leadership in our federal government. Um, and I think when we start looking at Government, industry, anything, I think leadership and having the right people in leadership roles becomes uh, extremely important. I think that's become evident here in Canada in the last couple of years with just the Trudeau government is very anti-agriculture, anti-blue collar. Um, yeah, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, yeah, you can't, a guy like Trudeau that has never had to work for a dime in his life can't be the guy running this country. We need somebody that has actually had to work a week in their life to put food on the table running the country. We can't, like, 
Yeah, it gets me fairly worked up because there's been a lot of backlash about the Liberal government, and uh, I, I think it's time for them to go. Uh, we have a younger guy by the name of Pierre Polyev, sorry, and he's the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And he's a guy that um, was adopted by two school teachers in Western Canada. He was born in a 16-year-old unwed mother. And she told him, this is her exact words, it does not matter where you came from, it matters where you're going. And I think those are very important words to uh, to really reflect on. And, uh, and yeah, I think... I think, I think once he comes into power, uh, I don't see how anybody could vote the Liberal government back in after all they've done to Canadians. Uh, I think I think we'll be on the right track then. But until then, I think there's going to be a whole lot of hurt. So how, how, uh, how, how does the carbon tax work then? So I'm not sure the details on it. I know like our, our gas is extremely, is heavily taxed even before the carbon tax was in. And it's only gotten worse. Um, now they're, so since, since the war started in Ukraine, here's another thing is the liberal government has imposed a tax on nitrogen and, um, map products, phosphorus products, um, coming out of Russia. We're the only G7 country that's done that. And like, why do they feel like hurting Canadian farmers a solution? Putin knows we need to go there for some of these products. Yeah, I understand there, there will be a couple other sources we can source some of it from, but for the most part, these elements need to come through through Russia. What, why are we hurting the Canadian farmer over it? So you're saying, like, because obviously the global price went up just because of the constraints around energy, you know, energy prices rising and gas prices rising, pushed up fertilizer pricing, but you're, then the Canadian government's added on top of that an additional kind of tax or tariff on product coming from Russia? Yeah, they're calling it a tariff, but it's a 35% tax. It's not a tariff. They can call it whatever they want. But, uh, yeah, at a time in the world when uh, we have people starving and uh, don't have enough food to eat, we're we're trying to make it more difficult for farmers to be able to do our jobs. It's simply unacceptable. And, uh, yeah, it's time. it's time for them to go. We cannot keep going down this road. So would you would you say that in terms of from the from the from your perspective as a as a Canadian sheep farmer that your it sounds like your biggest issue at the moment is the government rather than labor or or other kind of on farm factors? Um I would say as a sector we need to be uh, working towards um uniting the industry across every province. Right now, there's a little bit of a split between the major sheep-producing provinces in Canada and the, the, like, the sheep-producing provinces that don't have as many sheep in Canada. And I think until we can all get on the same page there, I think we're going to have a hard road ahead to, to make any ground. Um, we have a tremendous opportunity here, and I've spoken to producers that have been in it for 45 years. 45 years ago, we were only producing 38 to 40% of our domestic demand here. That hasn't changed. The only way it's going to change is collectively as an industry and right through the supply chain, we can make the difference. Like we, we have to, the way I see it is <clears throat> the processor doesn't want these large influxes and lambs. They want a consistent supply. They want to have hooks filled week to week. 
We cannot be trying to hit all these holiday markets and then forget about the rest of the year. If we want retailers to put lamb on their shelf, they're going to want lamb on their shelf every week of the year. And the processors want hook space filled every week of the year. So why, as producers, aren't we building our business models to be able to produce lambs throughout the year? Now, I understand some breeds are seasonal and that doesn't work as well. But I think we need to be working a lot more on the genetic side of things to make to make that work. And I think from a on-farm standpoint, the business side of it on-farm, spreading your marketing throughout 12 months of the year is an excellent way to spread your risk out in terms of pricing. The more the more sales you hit through the year, the more price, like you're going to hit the lows, but you're going to hit the highs too. So at the end of the year, it averages out. What's the what, what's the current flock in Canada in terms of size now, and what's the trend been? It's not. I have to admit, it's one of the areas from in terms of a sheep perspective. It doesn't get a lot of kind of uh, you know from an Australian perspective. We tend to look to see what's happening in New Zealand or the UK, you know, because um, because they tend to compete a bit more in that export space with Australia. But the Canadian flock is not something that kind of you know is something we look at closely. What's what's the situation there? Yeah, I guess I don't really have exact numbers on the ewe flock. Um, what I can tell you is we're short 1.5 million lambs a year. If that in terms, of, in terms of your, in terms of your lamb slaughter. So yeah, I've, uh, yeah, off, off, the, terms of, off the top of my head, if I remember rightly, back in 2013, it was about 679,000 head was the Canadian breeding flock. Okay. With about 185,000 breeding ewes and about 27,000 breeding replacements. Yeah, off, the top, honestly, off, the top, off the top of my head. Good memory, yeah, Andrew. Honestly, I don't know where we'd stand right now. I know there's been, I would say, probably our average flock size has gone up from 2013. Like, I, I think around 2013, it would likely have been around 60 or 70 ewes it's likely over 100 now i know you're getting more thousand ewe flocks and 2000 like a couple two thousand ewe flocks around so i think you're getting larger flocks um but yeah there's there's definitely still a lot of potential here for growth mm. and and that that shortfall that was one half million lambs you said per annum that that reflects the gap between what you can supply domestically from your own production in terms of the demand domestically versus what you're bringing in externally. That's correct. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, and another issue we have here is like young producers, they'll get in and then at five years, it seems to be a bit of a cutoff. You either stick with it or you get out of it. So, so producer retention. Like new pig farmers, mate. <laughs> but five yeah. years, then get out of it. Yeah, Andrew and I just <laughs> sold our pig farm that we were in partnership with. Uh, we held for five years, so it's a bit. Maybe that's because I, I, I taught at one stage in my career. I was a teacher, and I think that's the same stat that within I think within five years of someone starting a teaching. Uh, career half of the half of the people that started five years ago they led leave at year five so maybe it's just a a factor of a couple of different industries that that's when you that's the make or break time five years five year itch 
Yeah, maybe it's just not the Canadian sheep farmers <laughs> then. <laughs> what about what about fake meat? Like we we asked this one quite a lot because I, I noticed actually uh, yesterday Edinburgh City Council has banned meat from its lunches. Is there oh, any really? is is there any move by the Canadian government? I know that Trudeau is pretty progressive in <laughs> in quotation marks. Is, yeah. Have they had any move on fake meat in Canada? Nothing that I know of. It's definitely a product that's available if you want it. I don't freak at the grocery store very often, so I don't know how much of it's actually on the shelf. But, yeah, I, I don't think I – guess, I guess my opinion on it is I think a lot of people, once they realize what's actually in it, that they're they're really not going to stick with it like a lot of people want to eat naturally raised this naturally raised that organic or wh whatever like you, you know what i'm getting at there and i think once they they actually realize the full story behind it uh i, I just don't think it has a case hmm. like, i think if you want to eat tofu eat tofu like don't eat a yeah i i, I don't know that's just my opinion I think it's an interesting one because I think it does like I think the same thing of you there's this argument about f fresh food organic food whatever but then fake meat is sort of very almost the opposite of natural yeah it's about as unnatural yep. as it can get really and, yep. it's and I, I feel yeah and I feel like it'll be that similar type of clientele that would be interested in something like that like think they're going to save the planet type of people by eating it but that that's simply that's simply false though and uh yeah i i, do you know, I do don't you think know, as do far you, as lamb goes i don't think you're ever going to recreate lamb like that i think hmm. if somebody wants to eat lamb they're gonna eat lamb 100 percent. but you know the, the the one product that is a sheep product that will save the world wool no from a food point of view Oh, Matt, Daddy. Well, I'm pass, sure. pass this one to you if you want. You oh, oh, um, are you talking about? It's it's um, uh, it's a superfood. It uses products that wouldn't otherwise not be used. It tastes beautiful. What? It's a delicacy. What, mutton? mutton or no? That's mutton's a prime cut, really. Oh, oh, um, <laughs> yes, I know. Well, in, are you talking about the the liver? No. You're lamb's terrible, Matt. That's Daddy. lamb's fry. Lamb's fry should be like lamb's fry. Oh, are you talking about haggis? See, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised it took you so long, Matt Daddy, to get yeah, there. Okay, yeah, yeah. Haggis. Uh, you're using parts of it. You're using the stomach that would otherwise be thrown away. You're using the the lungs and the liver. And yep. it's the heart. So that's what that's what you should be encouraging. If you want, this is. Uh, Quite often we give business tips to people and uh, we give them free of charge on this podcast because we're charitable people. And that's what you should be looking to do is value add by doing your own Francisco's Haggis. And <laughs> that almost blows real nice. <laughs> well, and it's a huge, like if you think of Toronto, huge Scottish population, yep. lots of Scottish yep. immigrants over the last 20 years, you would make a killing. You would 
as they say in Australia, you'd kill the pig, or in this case, we didn't. Um, we didn't. We asked about black pudding in the sixth sense and got a pretty lukewarm, uh, <laughs> even worse than a lukewarm <laughs> reception. But um, <laughs> what I was surprised. I was, I was thinking of haggis, and because when we asked uh, our North American or the American producer, she had no idea what haggis was. But you obviously clearly know what haggis is, Matt. Have you what's what's your have you had haggis before? What's your feelings towards haggis? Uh, I've never had it before. Uh, fairly similar to black pudding, but uh, I might I might have to give it a chance though because it's derived from the shape. Yeah, I might have to give it a chance. I've been a little hard on you guys about it tonight. What about, what about lamb's fry? Lamb's fry. Oh, that's the lamb liver. I don't know. That's what they call it in Australia. The lamb's fry is a dish where they cook so the liver up. Cook the liver um, with okay. onion, onions yeah. and gravy and bacon. Yeah. Yep. Is that is that something you have in uh, in Canada? Uh, no, something not else. something I've had. But that might be above. I think they'll put. I put that above the uh, the black pudding or the haggis. <laughs> I'll maybe try that first. That would go nice. We're gonna take it slow. It would go nice. You could actually. You could. What you could do. And here's as as a. Everyone knows that I'm a, a good chef. Mm -hmm. uh, Jess Wallace listens to the podcast. She always asks mm -hmm. me for cooking advice. A nice poutine, I reckon, with yep. uh, with either sprinkled on black pudding or small chunks of lamb's fry on it would be, yeah. would be fantastic. I think I'd go without the poutine. <laughs> pretty Pretty picky on my food. I'm like a meat meat and potatoes kind of guy. Put some bread so, on the side. So you're not, my, a fan my, of, you're not a fan of the poutine at all? No, 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 no. But uh, my family's from Portugal, and uh, like over there, it's a lot of meat, potatoes, bread, fish. <laughs> That's Anchovies. what I grew up eating. Sardines. There's a, there's a, I'm pretty sure Sardines, a, too. I'm pretty sure there's a Portuguese version blood of sausage. like pudding, the blood sausage, right? They, they do have it in Spain, certainly. I imagine Portugal would have a similar type dish. Yeah, so. yeah. Portugal does have uh, it's it's a sausage. It's a blood sausage, is what it is. Which so is black, it's, uh, it's the same thing, black pudding, blood sausage. Yeah. The only difference is, if, as we as we know from our friends at Patton Park, mm -hmm. is that British and Irish black pudding uses oats. As the filler, whereas Portuguese and Spanish it's rice, isn't it? This is rice as a filler. Yeah. That's why it's yeah. got more white flexing it. So yeah. So there's a lesson for everyone. But that's an idea. Is I think it sounds very Francisco Haggis has got a good ring to it, <laughs> and you could be you could own the market. <laughs> yeah, there's an idea. You'll be calling me up once you hear about it. <laughs> oh, we'll just we'll just be wanting our our ten percent. <laughs> delivered in in product not in re not in returns <laughs> oh actually it says here i'm just looking up apparently haggis is actually illegal in canada what illegal yeah really i'm looking at the national post website what you're not allowed to provide it Oh, no, so every haggis sold in Canada is technically not haggis at all. Oh, no, sorry. It was that they couldn't buy imported haggis. Until that makes more sense. Because of, because of disease. 
What's uh, is that still stand? So any they weren't any... allowed. They weren't allowed to have haggis, which has uh, sheep offal. Is that still to today? So that means that you could corner the market. There'd be no comp- competition from overseas haggis in in Canada. Actually, it's actually this is quite interesting. While Canadians are allowed to eat most parts of sheep, lung remains in a fair, federally verboten category. It includes genitals, udders, spleens, and black gut. Uh, the long ban is mirrored in the United States, where authorities have similarly mandated since 1971 that livestock lungs shall not be saved for use as human food. Uh, McSween of Edinburgh, good haggis company, was forced to supplement this regulation by making their Canadian haggis with sheep heart rather than sheep lung. Hmm. You Canadians and Americans, you're too sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's getting worse too. So that's that's where it started. You know, the, the, the descent in Canadian politics started in the 70s when they banned haggis. It's gone downhill since. Maybe, maybe that's what a new Conservative government would do, would, would allow. That might have, I wonder if that was, uh, that was before my time. I wonder if that was when uh, Justin's dad was in power. Possibly, yeah. It would, it would have been about that time. So <laughs> what if? It's, it, it was just an attack on Scottish people. Yep. Do you know that yeah, no. here's, here's a fact before we actually go back to sheep. Canada has the largest proportion in the world of Scottish Gaelic speakers. Well, bigger than, Scot- bigger than well, Scotland. Yeah, way bigger than Scotland because only about 10 people in Scotland speak it. But, uh, <laughs> you get you get in trouble again with the... Uh, Gaelic police. The, yeah. So anyway, there you go. So, so Canada is very Scottish and we invented most of your sports as well. Curling and ice hockey. Was invented by the Scots. Okay, that's new information to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if ice hockey was invented by the Scots, was it? Yeah, it was invented by Scottish people oh. who moved to Canada. <laughs> Same as AFL was invented. And by they, Scots. they discovered ice over here, and they decided to start skating on it. Yeah. <laughs> and we invented Aussie rules football as well. That was invented by the oh. Scots. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if your, uh, you know, this your historical lessons are uh, completely factual. We wrote the Australian national anthem, Scots. Anyway, let's get back into it. Uh, the wool that you take off is it any good? Yeah, I would say in general, the Canadians like our wool clip isn't very high quality. I'm saying that. I think there's tremendous opportunity coming down the lines. Uh, I'm not sure how long it's going to take, but I see potential there in pelletalizing it uh, for its water retention Mm -hmm. properties. Um, I know there's a bit of interest uh, in trying to make a market for that. So what would you you be using that product for then after? Is that like to then kind of use on on the ground or to hold water or what? Yeah, so for for like flower beds and garden beds, it'd be more like a horticulture type product okay. that would get used in that sector. Um, it's just it, it's a totally natural product. Um, it's totally renewable, and we're just we're trying to create our own market here in Canada for wool because the global kind of global market has really not not been there lately. Like um, I know since COVID hit, before COVID, it was up to eighty cents a pound, which at that time was I think it was just about break even on getting shorn. And then it went to like ten cents. Mm. 
and I sent all my wool clip. This was from 2021. I sent my whole wool clip out in February, like a year ago, and I still haven't got paid for it. And I, I'm sure I'm going to get paid for it, but it's just, uh, it, it's like we have this <clears throat> awesome product, the way the world is going. They want lower carbon products. They want renewable products, but we have this wool that's just being totally underutilized. And uh, I think if in Canada here, we're able to take that wool and at least be able to use it for something like the water retention side of it. Or and horticulture beds, I think uh, I think there'll be a huge a huge plus there for industry. I think it'll look really really good on the sheep industry here in Canada. Have you, have you not considered like shedding sheep? I know there's there's a few producers out there. I know like Dorpers are okay. They just Katahdin, There's Katahdins out there. They just don't really fit into the, what the meat market actually wants here. Like they're more of a goat as far as I'm concerned. Like Katahdin is more of a, a goat as far as I'm concerned. Kind of fits into that market, um, opposed to like a prime a prime lamb. Um, it's just it's a totally different market here in Canada. I've seen nice Dorpers though, to say that though. But uh, yeah, I think uh, primarily we're made up of wool sheep here. It's an interesting uh, concept, though this this idea of palletizing the wool and then using it in a horticultural process. Uh, I've not heard of that one before. Is that something that's uniquely Canadian kind of inspiration, or how far down the pathway is is that in terms of a, a viable product? Yeah, so they are doing it in Germany. I don't know where else is doing it. Um, it was actually a group of. Um, Canadians went over there from the Canadian Cooperative Wool Growers uh, a couple of weeks ago to look at a little bit of what they're doing there. Um, and it sounds like they're getting along quite well with it. So we're just, we're looking to see how we can make it work here in Canada as an option to market our wool. Because um, it, like I said, it isn't a very high quality yeah, product. Yeah, it'd be a crossbred type wool, fairly coarse yeah. type of product. So, you know, then that market, you know, but well in Australia as well globally, it's it's been suffering for for a good few years since you know through COVID, and that it's uh, uh, you know, it needs to have some level of uh, you know inspiration to to get some support back behind that particular part of the wool, the wool kind of yeah. trade. It's 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 languishing a lot. Kilts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know. Andrew, Andrew's, ideas, still just... <laughs> Andrew's ideas to encourage the wearing of kilts uh, more, you know, outside of Scotland. You know, more globally for, for men to embrace the fashionable kilt. Well, um, we've we spoken about this many times, Matt. That physiologically, yes, that the kilt is more appropriate for a man, and due to the structure of their mm -hmm. parts, mm -hmm. and trousers are more suited for women. Yeah, and so I mean physiologically. We caught up with Margot Andre in Canada, in in Canberra. So uh, recently, she keeps referring to the kilt as the skirt, but skirt. Um, you know that's um that's one of the that's one of the stumbling blocks, isn't it? That, you know, there's a bit of a perception out there those <laughs> that haven't worn a kilt that it's a little bit um, feminine in its appearance. It's very. It's not feminine because you carry a knife with it. <laughs> <laughs> are you going to make these kilts uh, suitable for uh, the cold Canadian winters? <laughs> well, they are 
you'd be surprised how warm a kilt they is. They actually are quite warm. They are, you know, they are warm. So we can yeah. heavy heavyweight kilts for Canada and lightweight kilts for yeah merino <laughs> kilts for Australia. <laughs> and so, so that is I've, we're giving loads of ideas out in this podcast. So. <laughs> Francisco kilts. Francisco haggis. Yeah, <laughs> a very Scottish name, Francisco. So. So what what's the big challenge? What is if you had to name the biggest challenge facing well first of all facing yourself, what do you think that is? As a as a business. Yeah, I would say just getting worked through this period of time where it's kind of you've got that workload with a larger flock, yet you're not totally full time yet. And then coming down the road here, we're going to need to start looking at building infrastructure on the home farm and taking on larger amounts of debt. So the U, the U flock is going to have to carry um, tremendous more like more debt than what it currently is uh, to keep to keep scaling up. I think that'll be a challenge. Uh, my next challenge is land access to land. Here we have our land in this direct area is around thirty thousand an acre to purchase. So purchasing land really isn't in the budget for us. Like most of our farms here, thirty thousand an acre. Uh, thirty thousand. Thirty thousand an acre. Okay. Thirty thousand an acre. I was going to say three thousand an acre. You know, an hour or so outside Toronto, I'd be buying up as much as you can. But thirty thousand <laughs> yeah. is slightly different. <laughs> yeah, like um, so. So yeah, we're working with very high land values, um, and we're not we're not going to be in the position to purchase more land to produce feed um so we're gonna have to come up with some unique ways of possibly working with neighbors and, and uh, growing cover crops uh, and things of that nature possibly going to corn silage we're not feeding any corn silage right now it's a high tonnage per acre crop uh but at the same time we need those numbers in our u flock to to make it all pencil out is, um, is a is a is a kind of more intensive type system where you got a feedlot operation is that is that a viable option or not really uh, does it like just feedlot lambs there yeah. are there are producers doing it um yeah i think you, you have to do it at quite a scale to actually make it make sense like you're talking thousands to to make it really make sense i think your, your margins are pretty tight and i think there's a lot of times where there is no margin mm. um but yeah, that's just my opinion. Um, so yeah, I would say for, for myself personally, it's going to be carrying a larger debt load on the U-Flock once we start building infrastructure and access to land. Yep. Um, but I think we have a few ways to work around the access to land part in terms of feed inventory. Uh, I rent, I only rent 22 acres down the road here, so I don't rent very much at all either. And that's another issue. Like we have a lot of um, poultry quota in this area, poultry farms. Um, and there's getting to be more, more large dairy farms um, that control a lot more of the land. Like a lot, a lot, there's a lot less farmers in my area now than the, the once was, but the ones that there are still are controlling a lot more acres is what I'm trying to say. So it's hard to, it's hard to compete with with that. Uh, there, there really aren't very many sheep in my area. You go another 45 minutes from here and uh, you start to get more. 
But uh, yeah, until you really get north of Toronto, I would say there's really not a huge sheep population, like directly in this area. So the next question huh, is, what is the, as as somebody who's the chair of the uh, the young producers, what is the uh, what do you think the biggest issue is not facing you but facing the industry in general? Yeah, I would say just the the opportunity we have for growth, we just have to figure out how to get there um, and just collaboratively, collaboratively working together. I know a lot of young producers struggle to find resources as in terms of like bets or um, people price scan their sheep or nutritionists or things like that. And I think we can we can kind of help them through through that um but yeah i think uh i think that would probably be it i'm sure i'm going to think of another few here once we're off the podcast but um yeah that's what i would say there and i think like with our group what we've tried to create is a group where like new new brand new producers can come on and have the ability to connect with people that have been in it for a bit longer and ask those basic questions that they need to get uh, like answered and not feel like they're going to get judged about it. <clears throat> like just have, have an area where young producers come together and feel safe about whatever they need to talk about. <laughs> I don't, I don't care if you're having an abortion outbreak or what's going on. Chances are one of us has seen it before. Mm. So what is the kind of demographic of the sheep sector in terms of the you know farmer age and stuff? across across canada is it is it pretty much you know like most places geared towards the older operators into their you know 50s or 60s or is there is there a kind of a resurgence with some of the younger producers getting on board because of that opportunity you speak of i think there's a tremendous amount of young people in the industry right now uh, a, a lot of women too that that are getting into it which i really like to see um, but I, I would say probably if you look at a lot of the other sectors, I would think we probably have some of the youngest farmers. Like our overall farmer in Canada is getting older across all the sectors. But I, I, I would say that that's one of our strong points in the industry is we have a lot of we have a lot, lot of young people that are enthusiastic about it and they just need to keep going, keep working at it and build their businesses up and uh yeah, get get uh, get through those some of those hard times. Like we all have occasional issues, like mortality rates or like abortion storms or yeah. There's once you think you've got it all figured out with sheep, they throw something new at. You. <laughs> well, they're so designed. They're, they're, uh, sheep are designed to die. They're not enemy. That's the merino. I think the merino has got a bit of a. Yeah, you know, kind of uh, tends to do silly things, but some of the other breeds, I think, are a little bit more robust. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, we, we have sheep that do silly things here too and die. But uh, yeah, I think uh, if you're going to do it, you just got to keep working away at it. You can't, you can't throw in the towel because you've had so many issues or whatever. Like you, you got to work through those issues, figure out what went wrong, and work through it. Because if you if you give up, you're just you're not you're not going to get yourself anywhere. 
probably so probably true. Case, probably true of a lot of farming, I guess. Whether it's pig farming, Andrew, or uh, you know, harvest work, or, really, or the sheep sector, it's just really it's just true of anything, isn't it? Speaking up. of the pig sector, actually, I should have mentioned this probably half an hour ago that when we first moved up here to this farm we're on now, I actually worked on a pig farm for five years, a farrow to finish, 600 sows. And that that's where, that, that's part of the reason why I decided to get into sheep is because they had a constant farrowing operation. Like there was 30 sows farrowed a week, 200 piglets, 200 fat hogs went out type thing every week. And they had that constant cash flow yep. kind of working through. And that whole system, I've kind of tried to apply that to what I'm doing. And to get into pig farming commercially for myself here wasn't simply wasn't viable. So that, that was another reason why I got into sheep. So so effectively, if, yeah, if, we so, spoke, if we spoke to you, you know, six months ago, you could have you could have emigrated to Australia and bought the <laughs> pig farm we were selling. <laughs> yeah, my fiance would say that's my dream come true. <laughs> well, there is a there is a Hungarian version of, of pig that actually has a woolly kind of coat that looks like a sheep called the Mangalitsa. You could have yep. you could have did, you know the hybrid there. You could have gone down that pathway. You know, still had something that looked like a sheep, but you know, provide yeah. a beautiful <laughs> provide a beautiful black pudding and and pork products. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, like uh, the sheep industry has been extremely good to me, and uh, yeah, we aren't we aren't leaving. Good to know. Good to so, know. I do I do a lot of the day to day chore stuff when my fiance's at work and then uh, she'll do a lot of the record keeping and that side of things. And um yeah, when we're lambing it's all hands on deck, get her done in a tight time frame and carry on and then there'll be a weekend where we wean lambs and weigh lambs for market and every, every weekend there seems to be work for both of us to keep busy like just stuff that we both need to be around for vaccinating my dad actually helps quite a bit as well um like through the busy summertime uh with my job he'll do a lot of the rotational grazing stuff on pasture we rotationally graze our sheep with electronet and i'll do a little bit of cover crop grazing too do permanent graze permanent pastures and then uh yeah do a little bit of double cropping um cover crop grazing and then we'll we also grow our own corn for grain and i'll grain i'll graze the corn stover um my goal like this past year we grazed from the 15th of may till about the 14th of december i believe and the only reason i stopped grazing is because we were getting a big ice storm the next day and yeah. i yeah. said i don't want to deal with a bunch of a ele down electronet so you guys are coming coming off <clears throat> hmm. Right, well, we've probably kept you a long time. You know, you probably got your dinner to get. No, it's no, we got some chores to get done though. But uh, yeah, I'm always happy to talk sheep with whoever wants to listen. <laughs> but uh, no, it's been good talking to you, and it's been an interesting sort of discussion. And I hope you, I hope you seriously take those ideas and you set up uh, Haggis and Kilt Company <laughs> uh, for for direct marketing. And uh, and anything else, Matt, Daddy, for you to ask. Uh, no, I reckon it's been a, it's been a wide ranging discussion. It's been good to get another perspective. Um, interesting to see this is the first time around that that some of the the challenges um, that are facing other parts of the world haven't necessarily reared their head 
in the same manner in Canada. There's some some similarities, but some differences. So, but yeah, it's a it's a it was a good good chat. So I appreciate um, having you on, Matt, to to give us an insight into the Canadian side of it. Yeah, thanks. For yeah, that. thank you for having me on, guys. It was my pleasure. No worries. Well, it was. Uh, we'll call that a day. And thanks for thanks for coming on. See you when you got yeah. nothing on.